This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Pandemic Planet, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center and Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow with the Center, and I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President at CSIS and Director of the Global Health Policy Center's work. A little over one year into the COVID-19 pandemic, we are fortunate to be able to sit down today with Gunnar Ruttingen, Norway's Ambassador for Global Health, to talk about COVID-19 and global collaboration for the development of COVID-related treatments and diagnostics, and to hear his views drawn from a career leading research programs and clinical trials for vaccines and emergency situations on the prospects for COVAX, the global body overseeing the distribution of vaccines to more than 190 countries in 2021. Yunan Rutingen, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thank you very much. So you're trained as a medical doctor and an infectious diseases researcher and have worked as a professor with the World Health Organization as the head of National Research Institutes, and as the first head of CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations. In December, you were named Norway's Ambassador for Global Health, situated within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So I want to ask, how did you move from practicing medicine to overseeing research programs to working in international affairs? Is this something you, you might have anticipated doing when you were just starting out, finishing medical school? How did all of this come about? The true answer would be serendipity. And in a way, I've never made a clear career plan. I was really motivated to start studying medicine, both for the sort of practice of the professional subject, but also for the, the basic understanding of biology. And I started doing research early uh, in cell physiology, so quite at a micro level. But at the same time, during my medical studies, I was very inspired by a professor of social medicine. And together, we actually formed a sort of a working group among students and professors so we call the planet earth in a way looking at medicine and health from a really macro lens perspective and and i guess it's that combination of science and and sort of macro policy issues that have inspired me all the way and maybe maybe it was a destiny in a way to at, at some time actually also end in a, a ministry of foreign affairs as a diplomat so these days, a number of countries have global health ambassadors. That wasn't always the case, but over the last 20 years, we've certainly seen the intersection of health and diplomacy come together. But even if this is a, a new position, Norway has been at the forefront of linking health and foreign policy for a long time. And I'm thinking here of the Global Health and Foreign Policy Initiative that Norway launched with Brazil, France, Indonesia, Senegal, and South Africa, and I think Thailand in 2006, 
And then that led to the Oslo Declaration in 2007, really encouraging countries to make health a point of departure and a defining lens for foreign policy and development strategies writ large. And your colleague, Tor Godal, actually came to CSIS, I think, in 2010 or 2011 and talked about how some of this had come to develop and, and really be a defining feature at that point. But could you say why global health has been such an important area of foreign policy focus for Norway? And how do you see, you know, in this role that you will define success as a global health ambassador, particularly within the context of this unprecedented global health crisis? Well, thank you. I I think your analysis is right in the sense of seeing Norway as an important player, at least compared to size when it comes to global health. And I, I'm a strong believer in people, of course, as well as institutions, but I think individuals actually make a big difference. And my thinking is that we can sort of root this back to our former prime minister, uh, Gro Harlem Brundtland, who was the leader of Commission for the Sustainable Development many years ago, became our prime minister, and then after stepping down as prime minister, became the director general of the World Health Organization. She was instrumental in, in important changes at WHO, and she recruited also politicians from Norway to work with her. And I think as of around 2000, uh, gradually there has been a built up of a stronger and stronger multilateral engagement uh, of Norway in vaccination programs, in the Global Fund, in setting up organizations like SETI, the Global Financing Facility, and with a very strong emphasis also on the MDG 4 and 5. So this was definitely led by then Prime Minister Stoltenberg, Foreign Minister Jonas Karstöre, who started the, the Foreign Policy and Global Health Initiative. But I think we saw when we had a change in government almost eight years ago, that the new Prime Minister of the Conservative Party really has also made a difference. She has focused on health security, the Ebola outbreak in, in the West Africa motivated her to this. She's also worked on the intersection between gender, education and, and health. So we have had strong political leaders now for more than 20 years prioritizing health. And then I think it's the role of us in the in the ministry to support that political leadership through different efforts. And I believe all countries now in the pandemic see the need to actually strengthen the systems we have internationally. I, I must say we have done a lot in just a year, uh, collectively, in, in handling the pandemic. There's a lot of success stories. We would have wanted to be in a better place, but still, it's really a, a positive development. But I think everyone also sees that we just need to step up this game fundamentally, actually, and be better prepared for the future. So that is the kind of work I, as a health ambassador, would definitely be very much working on in the coming years. So it sounds like Norway's approach has really drawn on domestic experience and then brought in representatives and commitment from many sides of the political spectrum, really, to take a lot of that domestic expertise and work and share that internationally in the best of times and, and in the crisis as well. Yeah, and I think we have also really been rooted in science and evaluations and impact and performance. So we have really gone for the priorities where we can demonstrate that the priorities are based on solid evidence of potential impact and that the programs and the nature of how they operate are also evaluated properly so that we can, in a way, inform the public, because I think it's really important to have popular support, of course, for these uh, larger international efforts. Norway spends 1% of GDP on official development assistance or international aid. Health is a big priority there. And I think health speaks to the public in the sense they understand the priority of health, but it can also speak to them because you can demonstrate to you actually what you do is working. But coming back to the health security issue, I think 
that also demonstrates that this is really not about aid and sort of helping the ones in developing countries. This is really now also about making sure we have collective systems that can help us and them and everyone together. Uh, the pandemic demonstrates that without actually having total global control on the pandemic, we, we will not be safe. And that, to me, speaks also for the need for new financing streams and new thinking on how we resource actually these global collective goods in ways uh, and institutions and systems. Well, speaking of the global collaboration, let me turn to Steve. I know you have some questions around this area. Thank you. And thanks for joining us, Yunana. It's great to have you back with us. Just listening to this, it's very impressive. I mean, the span of personalities, high-level personalities who've engaged over an extended period of time. I mean, Torgadal's a towering figure and has been such both in Norway but internationally for several decades running. But to see that sort of lineage of Gro Brundtland, Erna Solberg, Foreign Minister Stoltenberg, and others. There was a ceremony. I remember I was talking last year, I think it was with Richard Hatchett, who had just come from a ceremony in which Torgadal was celebrated with the highest national honors in Norway. And it just sort of came home to me that this is something that is really very deeply shared uh, at all levels, including at a popular level. I think people in Norway take pride in the achievements and the influence and sway on these various matters. Norway's done quite well in containing the epidemic. I know you've, you've closed your borders with some recent incidents, but the numbers are very, very low. I think under 70,000 cases and under 600 deaths. Just remarkable, remarkable success in the degree to mobilize the country in a systemic way. Yeah, no, I, I think we have been successful. And that is definitely, I think, a consequence of the trust in society, common understanding or purpose. Uh, I also actually think it speaks to the equality and the, the solid welfare system that is actually a safety net for everyone, because it means that when you ask the population to adhere to specific infectious disease control measures as staying at home, do not go out to work. That's never a threat to the basic substances like having food, shelter, homes, and actually being able to survive. So, of course, having a society that has taken care of those basic needs makes it easier as well to respond to a crisis. Just back on the seminar you mentioned for Tore Godal, I, I agree that sort of a testimony to the importance global health has played. We have another also former AIDS ambassador Sigrun Mögedal, who played a very important role in the AIDS movement and mobilizing around that. Uh, and I should say that I see a very strong cross-political support, so across the spectrum for global health effort. Now we have our Minister of International Development, Dagging Ulstein, who's really championing the accelerator as well as the COVAX mechanism. And we have a foreign minister who's also engaged in Maria Eriksson Sörade, who's engaged in, in global health issues as a part of the broader foreign policy and security policy issues. Mm. So, so definitely a priority. Well, that's very encouraging. I mean, we're seeing in the creation of the Biden administration a similar phenomenon where across many different agencies, we're seeing personalities who have a long history of knowledge and commitment around global health coming into very powerful positions, and it's a source of great encouragement. Let's turn to some of the things that you're active in right now in the midst of the pandemic. You're working very closely with South Africa as co-chairs of the Facilitation Council for the ACT Accelerator. You're working to accelerate global access to diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines, COVAX on the vaccine arm, 
and you were involved in, in leading WHO's earlier in 2020 solidarity trials. Can you comment on what came out of those solidarity trials in your view? So actually coming out of the Ebola outbreak, we saw that we were not sufficiently prepared on the R&D side for actually examining new diagnostics, tests and, and therapies, as well as vaccines during an outbreak. So around the World Health Organizations, we developed what is called the R&D blueprint, which also should prepare everyone, including try to make model protocols for large scale evaluations in the midst of an outbreak. So early, I guess, February, there were development of model protocols, core protocols for large clinical trials. And as a member of the scientific advisory group of this R&D blueprint, we examined the current therapeutics trials and saw that there were actually hundreds of trials, but they were all very small and none of them could actually in a meaningful way demonstrate efficacy of drugs. So what we mobilized was a large collaborative trial across all willing and interested countries from high-income countries like Spain and Norway, who were the first to recruit patients here in Europe, but like Iran, Indonesia, Latin American countries, India, just to mention a few. And now actually we have a collaboration with more than 45 countries involved, clinical centers in all of them. We have recruited 15,000 patients into the trial, and we reported the first results early in the fall. Unfortunately, negative results. And I think what we did in this trial was to retake already established drugs that had antiviral activity and, and hope that they would demonstrate effect in hospitalized patients for COVID-19. We have learned much more now. I, I think more and more data indicates that antiviral therapy is actually probably only useful if you can give it very early, so before people are hospitalized, so just after a, a positive test. And we need to actually do more trials to examine that. And then it's the more immune modulating drugs that have the major impact in hospitalized patients. And as you may have seen, the, the large recovery trial from the UK demonstrated that the old established drug of dexamethasone, a steroid, has very solid effects in really seriously ill patients. But of course, it's, it's a challenge to mobilize such a large trial. So it took time to come up to the scale we are at now, capacity-wise. To me, there is a lot of regulatory barriers, actually, being the major concern. When you need to register and get approval of your trial in all individual countries, and then the ethics boards and committees in each country may have different views, it's quite a challenge to, to actually coordinate so that we can do one collective trial with one collective data management system. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about COVAX. This grew out of the initial efforts back in April of 2020, stood up as a subunit within the ACT Accelerator, focused on vaccines, has an ambitious goal, 2 billion doses 2021, covering 20% of the need in, I believe it's 92 countries. There's been issues, all sorts of issues around raising the funding, securing the manufacturing contracts to deliver on time, selection of which candidates are appropriate for this purpose and which are not. COVAX has sort of evolved in the midst of what is a very confusing and chaotic marketplace in a way. I mean, we have so many things happening and it's not very transparent, right? We've got all of the deal making going on, all the contractual securing of doses dominated, but not entirely dominated by the most powerful and the wealthy. We have manufacturing chokeholds that we hadn't understood we had over promises of delivery 
that are now having to be corrected. We have different vaccines getting through the phase three trials successfully and being able to go into requests for emergency use authorization. What do you think COVAX will really be able to achieve, to negotiate, procure, deliver in this period if we want to have a realistic concept of its contribution, which I think will be a very, very important, but it won't be by any means the sole contribution to covering the gap. Over to you. Yeah, no, yeah, you, you definitely describe a complex picture, and that's the reality. Of course, some would have wanted one coordinated, strong global organization who could handle this more rationally. That is not realistic, I would say. But we have managed quite a lot through COVAX and, and through the partnership that uh, has been established. COVAX is in line with plans, actually able now to secure vaccinations for the 92 uh, poorest countries, the, the so-called AMC countries, have contracts for 1.3 billion doses, have contracts in total for 2 billion doses, so that also the self-financing countries who have relied on either fully or partially the COVAX as a procurement uh, mechanism. So we are ready to go that route. And due to, of course, manufacturing and supply issues, the major part of that rollout will happen from the second half, but also partly now in the second quarter of 2021. The, the challenge is, I would say that most of these deals were in many ways considered and actually reality decided last summer. And then the rich countries, of course, had an opportunity to go broader and actually make investments across very different vaccine platforms. And that was really important for us because it took down risks and it made quite a broad set of companies fully working on developing and testing the vaccines in large-scale phase three trials, as well as starting large-scale production. By sort of serendipity, it is actually the platforms that were considered the most risky, the new mRNA platforms that first came from effective results and breakthroughs, which is fantastic. Right. But that was not the bet that COVAX and Gavi could actually make. Right. Because partly based on resources, partly based on price, but also partly based on, on the concerns related to infrastructure requirements and things like that. So I think what we have now is in particular the political tension of that gap right. when we start rollout of vaccines, mRNA vaccines, firstly in high-income countries, until we have the recombinant vaccines, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and also the protein subunit vaccines, Novavax, ready to go across the board, including in the low and middle income countries. And I fully understand the tension that has created and the political need to demonstrate leadership and actually action in countries across all income levels. And, and unfortunately, I think we have middlemen and some actors who are commercially benefiting from this, making deals outside the normal systems and, and actually allowing some additional deals going into countries where actually leaders can demonstrate they have secured their population. But in reality, most of those vaccines will probably come even later than the joint vaccines through COVAX. Um, would you say, would you agree, uh, Yonana, that in recent months we've seen a kind of accelerating tension and a sense of desperation in some places where political leadership is under intense pressure I mean, in, within South Africa, when it was revealed that they had inadequate forward contracting, it was enormous outcry. I mean, this forced the president into a position of giving 
national speeches around all of this and taking emergency measures. And do you think that higher level political leadership could help bring greater transparency and order into this, which is looking like a pretty chaotic marketplace? Yeah. And, and in a way, we, we do not benefit from the, the, the positive sides of an efficient market either. So I, I definitely think that more transparency in this marketplace would have been a clear advantage for everyone, including the companies, and it, at least the sort of responsible companies, because I think there, are, there is a spectrum here, definitely. And I see uh, all the larger vaccine companies actually behaving very consistently and responsibly and wanting to partner here, but it's quite a complex landscape. So I think both on the government side and on the company side, we should have gone for transparency at an earlier stage. And I think both the Facilitation Council of the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator, Act A, as well as potentially G7, G20 could be such uh, fora. Actually, this week, we are discussing some principles related to how we can ensure equitable access in the Facilitation Council of Act A. And I think we need further political debate here. It's fully understandable in many ways, the, the tensions that we see, because knowing that just a couple of weeks delay or changes in really large-scale vaccine rollout in countries have a large societal and economic impact, as well as, of course, the perceptions in the population. If you see inequalities, I think they are causing tension. And in a way, if you see Europe as a microcosm in a sort of a micro world, as you know, there was there was some, some debate early on in Europe whether individual countries should go alone and purchase and, and do the risk-based procurements, either as a small group of countries or whether it actually should be a collective, solidaric European approach. I think some of us work for a, a global solidaric approach, but, but at least to try to do that at the European level, that has also caused some tensions. And, and I think what you see now is, is also, to be honest, some tension between the Commission, who has stood for that coordinated common approach to all of Europe, yes. and member states who... Right. We are pressured by their popular voting and, and support in countries. Yes. Which in a way illustrates even quite an equal region and actually a region where we have structures for collaborations uh, like EU. There is There are tensions and problems when you really try to do it in a systematic way where you roll out at the same level in all countries at the same time. And I think that has also now created tensions, of course, with the with the difference in rollout in the UK, who, who just left the, the Union uh, as of New Year, and which has not helped the, the image of the European Commission and the European Union delivering to the expectations of the population. Yes. Over the summer, the US government under President Trump turned down the option to join COVAX. But now the Biden administration, a very early act, put forward a national strategy, it put it forward its first national security directive focused on COVID-19, 13 executive orders, three memoranda, and a $1.9 trillion ask, of which $400 billion is dedicated in one fashion or another to the COVID response. The December emergency funding measure uh, that was still under the Trump administration, $4 billion contained in that to support Gavi and its efforts of procuring and delivering vaccines. And now we have $11 billion under the Biden administration effort. In its $1.9 trillion budget, we've got an, a commitment to join COVAX, a commitment to renew the relationship with WHO, all things that have been widely applauded here in the United States as major steps forward in re-engaging. The U.S. 
re-engaging in a meaningful way in support of these partnerships. Of course, many of the details to be worked out, how and why that $4 billion gets put to best use. But uh, nonetheless, it gives the U.S., I think, some measure of quick credibility and standing and ability to sit at the table and be a partner. What are your hopes for U.S. engagement in COVAX? There's many other things beyond just cash or surplus vaccines, although surplus vaccines remain an issue. And we'll get to that in a moment. But what else do you think? What's your hope for this expanded return U.S. engagement? So first of all, I would say that it's it's very welcome that the U.S. is doing this turnaround quick action after the Biden administration took office. I think the day where we, at least here in Europe, more or less started the day with Tony Fauci speaking at the executive board of the World Health Organization with the highlights of, of new policies. And then when we woke up the next day, 24 hours later, the directive had been issued and we had been the ability to read through the details. I think that has been very welcomed across the board in, in all countries. So the U.S. is very welcome back to global health. And I think the $4 billion to COVID-19 vaccination, which will in some way go through Gavi to COVAX, is very welcomed and very important. It will make the U.S. in absolute terms the most important contributor financially to Act A and to COVAX, which is, of course, important given the size of the U.S. economy. I also do hope that of the $11 billion that are now at least as a budget envelope in the stimulus bill process in Congress, that around half of that can go to the global multilateral efforts that are the ACT A envelope. So we go not only to vaccines, but also to, to treatments and tests. We need to roll out rapid diagnostic tests uh, much more quickly, and, and we actually need to do more of that. Given the new variants, I think we actually need to live with this epidemic and the pandemic situation longer than we had hoped for. So the vaccines is, are not the only solution, and we may even mm-hmm. may need new vaccines, or uh, at least changed vaccines, in the course of the coming year. So actually, these efforts are really important. But of course, now I'm talking about the financial contributions. I think U.S. with its expertise, with its science, with its strong institutions relevant to public health and to global health, I think would be very much welcome. And we are looking forward to working with U.S. government as well as the different agencies and institutions, very much so. Do you think that U.S. influence can be brought fruitfully to bear on the question of the manufacturing gap, the need for there to be accelerated expansion of manufacturing capacity? And do you think U.S. official influence can be brought productive, fruitfully to bear in terms of this transparency issue? I hope on both accounts, and I think the latter is the prerequisite for the former. I think we need transparency to better understand the full picture and better agree, actually, on the the major interventions needed. Everyone sees the need for increased manufacturing capacity. We also know that this is not it's it's not easy. It's not about opening a new factory in a couple of days. It it will it takes time to establish biological production of vaccines and it, we need that timeline in many ways but i hope that we can look into now the most promising platform technologies and in particular focus on how we can expand the capacity of, of, of some of them as you know some of the companies who have been successful in developing these new vaccines they have been fairly smaller biotechnology companies and they were not scaled for the production we actually now need. And I think a partnership between governments and pharmaceutical companies should really look into how we can expand manufacturing capacity. Absolutely. 
I want to get back to this question that you all touched on a second ago around the excess doses or surplus with COVAX and, and just with the, the global situation. We know that some of the high-income countries have negotiated or made agreements to purchase many more doses than they have even people to receive them. And yet, even with all the commitments of, of COVAX, there are lower and lower middle-income countries and even middle-income countries that won't be likely to have access to doses beyond what they can secure through COVAX, which may be 20 to, to 27% over the next year. So how should countries and the global community deal with this issue in a, in a collective or collaborative way? There was the framework that was issued in December that encourages discussion and funneling all of these through COVAX. But we may see countries using the offer of excess doses as a way to give those to their allies or secure trade advantages. How do you see that playing out in your discussions through the Facilitation Council and your larger work with health diplomacy? Well, first, I, I think we, we need in a way to correct the narrative that is partly seen in media that countries actually have bought more doses than they needed. So in a way, buying a luxury good that is uh, not necessary because, of course, these decisions were made when no vaccines were approved and there were different risk tolerance and profile and thinking in countries. Uh, normally, only 20% of vaccines going into clinical testing and development actually end up being an approved vaccine. So in many ways, the rational choice would be to actually buy five times more than you needed and actually spread the risk across different vaccines. And now we have a situation that has been more positive than we could have expected. So more vaccines seems to succeed, even though there are some variants and difference. So one, I think we should actually applaud those countries who took the risk and actually thereby started the process of full and fast clinical testing and scaling up of manufacturing. But at the same time, now we should really use that situation to redistribute those vaccine doses as soon as we see the real level of uh, surplus, because the surplus may change still, given that there are still some vaccines that have failed in this development process and more will fail. But when we have a better picture, I think we should definitely put in action the so-called donation program that COVAX has established. Having said that, I, I understand and we see that some countries are looking for bilateral donations as a part of potentially their diplomacy work. And in that sense, I think to do this in a good way, I think we also need to welcome Russian and Chinese and all the spectrum of Indian vaccines into the global supply. Of course, if they adhere to the rules, if they, if they can deliver solid clinical data, if they can accept inspection of the manufacturing facilities and thereby encouraging everyone to make sure that we use the coordinated approach to procuring vaccines and distributing vaccines. So in that sense, the ideal model would be that vaccine doses would be seen as a similar support to COVAX as the cash. It's just another way of contributing to the collective system. Gavi has put in place these mechanisms. We are working in Europe to make sure that we can start donating. And I think it's important to work on that from all different countries who have that ability and, and see that they have a political choice to do so. But it, it sounds like what you're saying, though, tracks with what you, know, you and Steve were talking about a second ago as well, that transparency and coordination are going to be important, whether that's bringing in additional manufacturers or additional countries, but really thinking through how this can be done in a transparent way so that it can be understood by everyone. I think that it's also very important to ensure that everyone gets vaccines of sufficient quality. And of course, there were concerns when 
some countries approved vaccines long before any scientific agreement on, on the level of quality had been met, and in particular on efficacy. I think this is also important for ensuring trust in vaccines and large-scale vaccination programs moving forward. So that's why I think we should push for transparency. We should push for all vaccines being assessed by the pre-qualification system of the World Health Organization and then potentially be listed as emergency use listed vaccines. May I just interject for a moment? I mean, your point about our countries bending the rules a bit. We did see in the discussion of Bharat in India of several of the Chinese promising vaccines, certainly Sputnik V, this pattern of of not abandoning the notion of phase three trials necessarily, but claiming there was data but without sharing it, and then moving ahead with targeted vaccination campaigns, both in the countries themselves, but also in partner countries. And some of them on significant scale. You look at UAE and, and elsewhere, there's significant scale. And so on an ethical and safety grounds, it was a dangerous period and it pushed us into fearing that what we might be heading into is a marketplace in which for many low and middle income countries where these spigots are opening, you could have a polluted and dangerous marketplace that could, if, it, if things went badly, really damage public trust and confidence across the board. Do you feel like we're rounding a corner? Sputnik V, uh, they just came out with their Lancet phase three trial results last week from within Russia. That was very promising. The Chinese are beginning to share a little bit more, although they still have a, quite a ways to go. What's your sense? Is this ship going to right itself or are we going to be in a world of amb- ambiguity and some having made pre-qualification at WHO or get through the box with EMA, but others don't? I, one, I, I agree that we were concerned and we had the reasons to be concerned in the early fall when we saw these large-scale rollouts without actually phase three data and not sufficient data either on efficacy or safety at scale. I was vocal in media on that. And then, of course, media didn't understand the difference between being critical on the process and the timing versus critical to the vaccine and the vaccine technology. And because I, I tried to say that this vaccine may may be good, it can work. It, it's actually based on the same technology that other vaccines that we are hopeful for. It's just about doing things at the right time. Now, I think we are actually, in a way, moving into a better water and smoother water. These companies are willing and interested in being assessed according to normal standards. And I think we should just make sure that the door is open and that we can always welcome anyone to be assessed according to the same standards. And so that in the end, it will be the choice of individual countries or companies whether to adhere to the global collective standards. And at least it's really important to avoid someone being able to say after the fact that we were not allowed to have our vaccine tested in the same way or our vaccines being used by the global community. I think we need to be open, irrespective of the origin of the vaccine or the company. And I think I see that kind of culture, which is really key. But of course, it needs we need the data, we need to, yeah. we need to inspect, yeah. we need to be able to have full confidence yeah. in, in what they are demonstrating. Yeah. I was encouraged to hear you say that COVAX would welcome quality, safe and effective vaccines from Russia and from China or from India, Bharat or Serum Institute. We need a greater diversity of them. We need greater volumes. We need greater predictability. And the more quality, safe and effective we have, the better. 
So let's hope that that's the way we go. So let's talk in our closing segment here about the new viral variants. We've been doing a lot of work on this. I know this is something that's weighed on your mind. It seems that these viral variants have suddenly occurred. Uh, they're suddenly proliferating. They're getting various names. The South Africa, UK, Brazil versions, they're appearing in environments where you have uncontrolled transmission in large population pools, where the replication happens, the mutations happen. We have insufficient detection capacity in terms of genome sequencing and surveillance. And so they're spreading like wildfire. They're becoming universalized and they're raising the specter of, will this bend the game? Will this weaken the safety and efficacy of vaccines? Will they weaken or, or render far less useful the therapies like monoclonal antibodies and the like? What are we going to do in here in terms of a rush creation of genomic sequencing capacity that can do the kind of R&D on how do we need to modify the vaccines and therapies to make them continue to be maximum effectiveness? But also, how are we going to knit together some kind of global effort? Because as some segments of the world get towards herd immunity, there's still going to be large populations that are lagging behind that have uncontrolled transmission where we're going to see those variants. And any time those variants get out of the box, they're going to affect us all. What is your thinking on this? Yeah, one, one is that um, the naming game in the sense of naming them as the UK or the South African or the Brazilian variant can actually mislead the understanding because I'm pretty sure that, for instance, for the UK variant, been several parallel evolutionary pathways ending with more or less the same genetic changes. And that's because the longer we wait and the longer the virus has the chance to adapt to its new host, and of course the human host is a new host, the higher likelihood is that it will become more efficient in replicating and thereby also transmitting to new to human subjects. And then, of course, in addition, we have the phenomenon that actually it's first later in the epidemic we have started with whole genome sequencing at a much larger scale. And UK was among the early countries who actually started large-scale genome sequencing. So the chance of actually seeing it in the UK was much higher. But definitely, I think we have a viral variant now quite spread in the world, I guess, which is more transmissible and maybe also have a bit higher case fatality rate. And then the other variants are the ones that have started to become apparent as a consequence of the evolutionary pressure of immunity. So natural immunity, and then later maybe even vaccine immunity, may sort of move the viral populations to escape that immunity. And that is, of course, the most worrying, I think, because rightly so, as you say, we may end up in a situation where larger part of the world is immune, either by natural infection or by vaccines. But then we have still an ongoing active transmission in some societies, and the new viral sort of immune escapes in many ways, they move back to the populations that are protected and which cause new waves of the disease. And this is not an unlikely scenario. So I think we need definitely increased R&D capacity. We need increased capacity for changing the vaccines we have. And we may also need to actually rethink the vaccination strategy. Maybe we need broader based vaccines that cover more of the different antigens of the virus and then boosting with more specific antigens that are based on sequencing data and, and understanding. This would be more like the flu vaccine, a multivalent. Yeah, po potentially multivalent. Mm -hmm. or, or if we vaccinate with a, even an inactivated viral vaccines like the yes. Chinese vaccine and one of the Indian vaccines, 
And even though we probably see that they are not giving the same level of protection, they may give a broader level of protection or a broader broader protection against different variants. And then we could add boosting vaccines with more specificity based on, as you say, like we do for flu, based on the epidemiology of, of, of viral variants in the community we vaccinate. Of course, this is early to say, but I think it just illustrates the need to really still invest in R&D and development and invest also in increased manufacturing capabilities. Thank you. Over to Catherine to bring us in. Well, this has been a really remarkable conversation. We've covered research and evidence and data, pandemic preparedness, crisis diplomacy, development financing, as well as transparency and the importance of trust among governments and between health providers and the community and at the community level around public services and vaccines. So Ambassador Jan Arno Rutingen, thank you very much for speaking with us today and best of luck in your ongoing work at the intersection of global health and foreign relations in the COVID-19 context. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be back at CSIS. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.